Welcome to Stories of Sacrifice, American POWMIA's podcast, the voice of the missing in action and those that are buried as unknowns in our national cemetery. I'm your host and lead researcher, John Bear. Just a boy turning 17 Took me away from my home in Abilene I was sworn I'm a soldier now I was trained to survive And from a boy I became a man We journeyed to a place called Nam Spent 13 months of living in fear They say it's over, but I'm still here Hey America, can you hear me? Don't you remember me? Welcome to today's Story of Sacrifice podcast. Uh, today we have a special guest with us. Uh, his name is John Mitchell. He served on the USS Pueblo and uh, 1968, uh, I think it was January 68, uh, the Pueblo was on a mission uh, in just outside in international waters, just off the coast of North Korea, uh, where they were gra- uh, gathering some intel. And uh, I've got John on here uh, to talk with us today about his experience on the Pueblo and and uh what happened with the ship how you doing john i'm doing good thanks so uh you uh started out on the uss pueblo and that was in well probably late or early 1968 in january in japan is that where you're at um i got on in san diego i'm trying to think maybe september Oh, okay. So September yeah. 67. Yeah. Yeah. And then we, you know, we, uh, uh, we traveled over, which took us, th- I don't know, three weeks or something. And then we spent, uh, December basically in, in, uh, in Japan uh-huh. getting ready. And, uh, then, um, after that, we left Yokosuka, Japan and took off on our little uh, voyage. So, so what was your, what was your, uh, position on the ship? What was your, your, uh, rating? Well, I, I hadn't, I mean, I'd been out of boot camp, but that's about it. So I was <laughs> what they call, uh, I was an Ingerman striker, which was not really anything to do with what I was supposed to do or going to do. Um, after getting on board at sea, um, I did a lot of little jobs. We had a lot of young guys on there that had no experience at anything. So they were trying to teach us a lot in a short period of time. And, and they didn't want you just, you know, being, being uh, ready for one job. Right. More, a little bit more like a little submarine, you know, where you had to know three or four different little jobs and do things to keep things running. And, uh, but 
I did. I did get a different job than the engine room. You know, when you're a, a striker on a ship, you're going to stand watches and that can get ugly. So yeah. um, I got called into the officer's wardroom one day and I'm thinking, man, like, what could I have done wrong? You know, you don't, you don't get called to the officer's wardroom very often. And usually it's because you did something wrong. And I get in there. What I find they wanted to do was give me the job of the engineering yeoman. Oh, nice. Yeah. So I would have my own little space on the ship and I didn't have to stand watches, which was a sweet deal. I mean, I'm dumb enough when I get there. In the wardroom, they said, well, we got this job and we see you, you held a job similar to your parts man in a car dealership for a while. And then you knew how to type. And I said, yeah, somewhat. <laughs> and um, I said, well, the guy's doing it, don't like it. So we need somebody to do it. So I said, I kind of went like, well, I don't know too much about this. I said, uh, what's in it for me? Not realizing you don't bargain in the military. You don't bargain. But that was the first thing out of my mouth. And they kind of smiled and said, no sea watches. I wasn't that dumb. <laughs> I said, all right, that, that's enough to, to make me want to do it. And so, you know, I kind of get to the point in a few days, I'm thinking, working down there a little bit and not a lot to do yet. And I'm thinking, man, I have got it made. If I got to be on this, this is about as good as it's going to get. <laughs> so right. for, the next, for the next two years, yeah, I got a pretty cushy job. If I just do it right for the next two years, nobody will bother me. I come and go off the ship as I want and port. Um, and I got, I got my own little space. And so we left Japan and I'm thinking, eh, this ain't going to be too bad. But... As all things, they don't go that way. We uh, we began to freeze up at points, and we had to all, including the officers, were out chipping ice. Oh, and uh, so that was every all-hands-on-deck affair. And, you know, again, sometimes they would get you to fill in for somebody who, you know, maybe couldn't pull a, a four hours that you need. They needed somebody. And so you just go do it irregardless but i didn't do any sea watches and so it was all down in the ng room where it was nice and warm so that that itself was not too bad i'd been trained on how to do clean some uh some pumps and stuff before we left and i could do that it wasn't really super hard and i right. just just kind of snuggled in thinking i'm all kind of safe and warm here you know, I ain't numb, and I'm and I'm not above board up on board deck. Um, don't get too much better. Yeah, I don't think it'd get too much better than having to be, you know, where you're at compared to having to be up on deck in the middle of the Sea of Japan in the winter. <laughs> no, no. no even cool. even chipping ice wasn't a thrill. So yeah, it was. You know, I thought I had it okay. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So you guys, uh, you started out and you left Japan, and then you were working your way. I guess it'd been be north, kind of north from Japan up up the South Korean coast and into the North Korean coast. I'm gonna play, yeah. a, you know, you, I guess before I play this video here. Um, so you guys, what what was your basic mission? I mean, what was? Well, at the time, you know, none of us were supposed to know. 
Right. And um, the, the CTs, the spooks on board, they weren't supposed to even talk to us. You know, we were supposed to act like the other people didn't exist. They, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't hardly look at you. They just did their job and snuck off in their corner. And um, although that we weren't supposed to know, we weren't, again, that dumb to not know what all this junk on top of the ship's for. And a little side note, uh, I was in San Diego, we're in training, and and they were pretty good at giving you weekends off. And, and I had stashed a little money. I had a girlfriend, and I, man, I was trying to sneak off home every weekend. Chiefs were fl- flights were really cheap in those days, little commuter flights. Uh-huh. And I get home, and my mom gets me a sign and says, well, I know what that ship does. And I said, well, how do you know? And she says, uh, I'm not telling. I said, well, what do you think it does? She says, it's a spy ship. And I'm thinking, this is supposed to be top secret. My, my you know, 60-year-old mother in the sac- middle of Sacramento Valley and farm, farm country already knows what it is. Boy, how secret is this? <laughs> you know, I never. she never did tell me where she found that out. I kind of forgot about it over time. Didn't ask anymore. She didn't like talking about it later after we come back. Uh huh. Didn't want to talk about it. So we just let it lie. Right. Well, wouldn't it have been, been hard on that ship for, for you to kind of have your own little I'm area? Sorry? I mean, you're talking about how many people are on that ship. Um, there was what, 83 of you total? Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. And I'd say I, I never took a head count, but at least probably 20 of us were, had no experience of anything. Right. I mean, we were learning from, from bottom up, you know, we didn't even coming out of boot camp. We didn't know anything. You know, right. I mean, basically you know how to do your, what you're told, but other than that, we have no usable skills, anybody. Yeah. That, I was just reading up on that ship and it was, it was interesting that they had like 83, 84, 83 of you on board when that ship was actually only designed for like maybe 50 50 or 60 people. Oh, I'm not even, yeah, yeah, it could be, but I'm not sure it was that many. Uh, when an inter cargo ship, I mean, if you ever seen Mr. Roberts? Oh, yeah. That's the hull. That's it right there. And, you know, it had been, the, the superstructure above had been changed uh, where the, where the, for holding cargo was gone. That was birthing. But you see, they didn't even have that birthing, birthing there. Uh-huh. So I would think it was even much lower than that when, during World War II when they were using it for inter-island cargo ship. Right. Yeah, I know they converted a bunch of those cargo areas over into birthing areas for y'all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Been Not real sweet, but... Pretty tight quarters. <laughs> well, I think I was on the fourth bunk up. If you oh, can imagine really? the new style bunks at that time that opened up at the top and your uh-huh. stuff laid inside your bunk. Try to open that on the fourth bunk up and get clothes out. (laughs) Took an unusual skill. Exactly. Exactly. Although I was up there, I did have a steam pipe right next next to me where I could put my clothes and make them all nice and warm. So every time I got up, I always had nice warm clothes to put on and made my bed a little warmer up there. So I think I had an advantage up there. Yeah, exactly. 
Okay, so you're you're in the Sea of Japan. You're headed north up the north or the South Korean border, and then you're you're kind of run or off the coast of South Korea, and then hitting North Korea. Uh, I guess you guys were doing some underwater type of. Uh, well, we had yeah, we had two oceanographers on board. Um, <laughs> oceanographers, anyway. I, I'm not really sure everything they were doing. They they probably were taking water temperature and, and flow. I, I'm just guessing so that you know our our navy would know like for their for our submarines what to to do. Um, they may have been listening underwater, putting stuff over the side so it didn't look conspicuous. Putting microphones over. I'm not really sure. And they you know those guys some of these guys those guys were private. They weren't navy. So, you know, <clears throat> more so than even the Navy crew, they didn't, they didn't want to talk about it even afterwards at all. Oh, no kidding. So I, you know, I'm, I'm not one to get real pushy of making some, asking somebody to tell me stuff. Right. Tell me, tell me if you don't, up to you. Right. Exactly. Well, I'm going to show this quick video here. It's, it's the Navy's, you know, it, it, it's going to kind of explain the, you know, the, the kind of the history of the whole uh, incident that happened and uh, I'll just get your perspective afterward but uh, it was it, this is a video of the Navy actually coming out after the fact after the Pueblo was uh, <laughs> captured and and uh, they're actually supporting the the ship and you know saying the ship wasn't in North Korean waters and and uh, I'll just go ahead and show the video yeah one of their wonderful hindsights <laughs> exactly <laughs> I'm Lieutenant Douglas M. Hackett of the Office of Naval Intelligence. This briefing will cover two aspects of the Pueblo incident, the Pueblo seizure and the analysis of the North Korean evidence. The USS Pueblo sailed from Sasebo, Japan on 11 January, 1968, according to her own report, which was transmitted on the 23rd of January. And she entered her operating areas, Mars, Venus, and Pluto on the 12th. Pueblo's mission was to gather data on electronic installations along the east coast of Korea. As is clear from her sailing order, the Pueblo had specific instructions that while carrying out her task, her closest point of approach was to be not nearer than 13 nautical miles from the North Korean landmass or offshore islands. All position reports transmitted by the Pueblo with respect to events on or before the 23rd place her more than 13 nautical miles at sea in strict conformity with her orders. Additionally, the North Korean position reports of the seizure did likewise. The first indication that anything unusual was taking place came sometime after 11.30 a.m. Korean time on the 23rd, when the Pueblo radio operator in operator's chatter transmitted more company and said that he intended to keep his circuit open. This radio circuit was maintained continuously during the incident, and the first formal report of the incident was sent out at approximately 1 p.m. The Pueblo, in describing the incident, said that a North Korean SO-1 class subchaser, pennant number 35, 
had been encountered at 12 o'clock noon Korean time. As the SO-1 class subchaser approached, Pueblo took a radar fix to verify her position. This position was reported as Pueblo's 12 noon position and put her 15.8 nautical miles from the nearest land, a North Korean island of Ungdo. Subchaser 35 reported her noon position to a shore station, and this was approximately two nautical miles from Pueblo and 17.9 nautical miles from that island of Ungdo, 5.9 miles outside the North Korean claimed territorial waters. Ten minutes later, the subchaser identified Pueblo as GER2. GER2 is painted on both sides of Pueblo's bow. The subchaser then reported Pueblo's position as 18.3 nautical miles from Ungdo, 6.3 nautical miles outside North Korean claimed territorial waters. During this period, Pueblo is dead in the water conducting a special hydrographic operation called a Nansen cast, which is accomplished by taking simultaneous water temperatures and samples at various predetermined depths. The ship's position must be precise for a Nansen cast in order to make seasonal comparisons with subsequent casts at that same exact position. Pueblo stated in her message that the subchaser had signaled asking Pueblo's nationality, to which the Pueblo responded by hoisting the U.S. ensign and the international signal for hydrographer. The subchaser then signaled, heave to or I'll fire on you. And the Pueblo responded, I am an in international water. The subchaser continued to circle the Pueblo. This message concluded by indicating that Pueblo intended to remain in the area if possible. This was in accordance with the standing instructions regarding such harassment. The next message from Pueblo, sent just after 1.15 p.m. Korean time, described a rapidly worsening situation. The subchaser had been joined by three motor torpedo boats. Several MiG aircraft had appeared overhead, and one of the North Korean units signaled, follow in my wake and one was backing toward the Pueblo with an armed boarding party. At 1.28 p.m., the Pueblo reported her position, which was 16.0 nautical miles from the nearest land. This was almost the same position she reported one hour and 28 minutes earlier at 12 o'clock noon, and is therefore considered consistent with the captain's 12 o'clock noon intentions to remain in the area if feasible. The first part of Pueblo's 1.15 p.m. message gave the 1 p.m. relative positions of the four North Korean vessels laying to 300 yards away from the Pueblo. The message then changed tone, saying, motor torpedo boat 604 is backing toward the bow with armed landing party attempting to board. Pueblo, all ahead one-third, right full rudder, departing the area under escort. Intentions, depart the area. The Pueblo sent no more formal messages, but for the next hour and 17 minutes, her radio operator continued to transmit a stream of fragmentary reports, some of which were sent on instructions from the ship's officers. At 1.26 p.m. and 1.28 p.m., the operator transmitted, they plan to open fire on us now. For the next hour, the North Koreans fired on the Pueblo with both 57-millimeter guns and machine guns. Subsequent reports from the Pueblo and the North Koreans stated that there were four wounded aboard, one of whom later died. Pueblo's position, as reported at 1.28 p.m., 
was 16 miles from Ungdo. Boarding was first mentioned when Pueblo reported at 1.15 p.m. that a boarding party on motor torpedo boat 604 was attempting to board her. At 1.29 p.m., Pueblo reported for the first time, quote, we are being boarded, unquote, and Pueblo repeated that she was being boarded on two subsequent occasions at 1.30 p.m. and 1.38 p.m. We now know that there were no North Korean personnel aboard the Pueblo until 2.32 p.m. when Pueblo reported have been directed to come to all stops and being boarded at this time, going off the air now and destroying this gear. So yeah, that's kind of a brief history of, of what events took place. Um, so where were you at during this time when, when uh, all this started going down? <laughs> if you remember. <laughs> we, you know, we talked, I hadn't, but some of the crew talked to, to the Banner, which is our sister ship there in Yakuska, had already been out there on station. And um, so they would say, we'd ask, oh, it's, it's nothing, you know, no big deal. They come up, they harass you. If you go to buy the Russians or the Chinese, they harass you, but you know, nobody's really wants to get into anything over it. So don't, don't, don't worry about it. So we go, okay. So we see these boats coming up and, and some of the young guys like my age that had just come on board said, Hey, come on, let's, let's go out on the, on deck and, and look at this stuff, you know, and it's pretty exciting. And, and so we're standing out there. And so, you know, we see the North Korean flag. So, you know, we, we start flipping the bird at them already. So obviously they didn't know what it meant. So it wasn't doing a lot of good. <laughs> so because yeah, yeah. that, that's, we'll another, story. that's we'll another, that's another later story. Hawaiian, good luck. We'll hear more. Yeah, yeah. Good luck so, so, a little yes. bit. <laughs> We're just trying to harass them for fun and, and stuff. And I think it was the XO came, came out and said, okay, um, everybody get inside. They say they're going to open fire. Yeah. Okay. You know, right. So he leaves and we stay out there and keep throwing our hands up and, you know, doing whatever we can to see if we can get a row out of them. And it wasn't five minutes. He comes back and he goes, that wasn't, a, that wasn't like a, a request. That was an order. Get inside. So, okay. We get the hint. We get inside. I immediately run back to the galley. Cause I know there's a porthole there. And it's open. So I stick my head out. Around the forecastle comes a sub chaser. And he just strafes the ship right, ship right underneath me. Oh, dang. And I hear bullets pinging. And I went, like, what? You know, I'm just like in shock that these guys were stupid enough. Stupid enough to do this, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and so then somebody grabbed me by the back collar, pulled me back out of the way. And they, they, uh, closed up the hatch. So I was still in the galley and, um, somebody tells me get every line up and, and to give everybody helmets, which were stacked in an enclosed passage on the outside of the, the main part of the ship. So, yeah, okay. You know, I start handing them out and then again, I hear blam, blam, blam against the ship. Well, we all hit the deck. Well, of course it was like, after after the fact, but your brain don't operate that way. 
Oh yeah, exactly. And then I get up and there's holes right where we're all standing. Oh Lord. They had not come through, but they punctured holes to, for daylight to come through. So I right. said, man, we should have bought it right there. You know, we're pretty lucky. And, uh, so we go inside that we're bringing ash cans and throwing stuff on the floor and, you know, everybody's got a lighter, cigarette lighter. Everybody smoked in those days. And so we all just start lighting stuff over a trash can. And as you burn it, drop it in, burn it and drop it in. And, and you, there's mountains of this stuff. And you're just going like, <laughs> and you're in an enclosed space. No air in, no air out. So this, I don't know how long that's going to go on. But before that happens, somebody comes in and says, we're being boarded. You know, every time they something happen like that, your brain doesn't really process it correctly. You're in, you're in a, everything's foreign to you anyway. Right now, something even bigger than what you were stepped into it comes along. So, you know, it's almost kind of robotic. You just dropped everything and you walked down the passage. And they, they told us to go down in, in our in our bunk where our bunks are and sit on the bunks and they they blindfolded everybody and tied everybody's hands so you know this is pretty spooky being blindfolded is a weird situation your brain brain just runs wild if you can see you have a little control without it you don't know so i'm sitting on a bunk and i hear somebody speaking a foreign language i got one of them sitting right next to me oh my god so you don't want to peek because you hear somebody move and then you hear somebody getting slapped in the head. And I kind of keep trying to peek. And I realize it's one of the Filipinos on the ship. He's praying. Oh, okay. You know, he's in Tagalog. I don't know Tagalog for anything. I didn't know yeah, Korean cool. really from anything. So, you know, I'm thinking the worst. Well, it wasn't the worst. It was, it was okay, you know. So, <laughs> oh, my God. So. And then, you know, they just brought us up. We could see, because I could see the boat at, at all this stuff at them. And then they pull us into Wonsam to a dock, but you can't see it. Whatever it was, it wasn't, wasn't very good because they had to, they said, kind of wanted you to walk. But every time you walked, there wasn't anything there to put your foot on. So they were manhandling you the whole time across whatever it was seemed to me like it must have been a beam because you touch something once in a while anyway don't matter and then they get us off and they haul us over to a they put us on a bus only a few minutes and there's people hollering i mean this is late uh -huh. and by this time and they're banging on the side and yelling yankee go home like okay no don't mind if i do right. uh, you know i'll go home and uh, you don't have to ask me twice Anyway, this is this is pretty spooky, you know. People banging, sound like they want to kill you right there. And I thought, man, look, it just turned us loose, and we're dead, you know, the hard way. I'm gonna back. Up here. Huh? I'm gonna back. I'm gonna back you up here real quick. Um, sure, sure. You're talking about burning stuff in the trash can and and things like that on the ship. Um, that had to do with a bunch of the sensitive equipment and highly classified documents that the Pueblo was carrying, correct? Well, I, I had nothing to do with the the machinery or right, any right. of that. It's a separate room. But I, I, you know, the, I was burning film and the only people taking 
well, we had a photographer on board and we had two oceanographers and I don't know if they weren't taking pictures. Doesn't matter. We just had a lot of uh, negatives. Right. So you're trying to get rid of them all, you know, as quick yeah. as possible. But I mean, you know, that's toxic fumes right there. You're oh, sitting yeah. right on it. Everybody's sitting right on it. And you're just burning this. You're not going to make a dent in the amount of crap that they started. They had. Well, I suppose it all just smoldered in there too. With all oh yeah, I'm sure they get picked up through it. Having issues just breathing. Yeah, and it, it's not going to burn completely. Didn't you just tried to make a dent in it, burn burn some of it, so they, maybe they couldn't put it together. You're not thinking. You're just burning. So yeah, yeah you know, it's just uh, a lot of junk. We were hauling around for for whatever. I have no idea. I don't think they know. Right to this day, they don't know. You know, they know it was a mistake and they don't do it. say they don't do it again. Right. <laughs> Buy that right. one real quick. Well, I'm going to so, I'm gonna ask kind of a sensitive question here. I, and you can answer if you want. And, and if not, if you don't. But uh, one, of, one of your crew members was killed. And uh, mm -hmm. was it at this time that they were opening fire? Or did, is that when that happened? Mm -hmm. Yeah, they shot, I'm assuming, an armor piercing shell because it came through the side of the ship into one of the passageways and it hit him in the groin. Oh Lord. And I wasn't there. All I, I, you know, I don't know any more than everybody's read a book. Right. It, 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 it basically severed his leg and, um, it didn't take too long. I don't think none of us were aware of this till much later. Right. You know, because we get to, Pyongyang and we're isolated from each other and you know people are wounded aren't even there with us at that time yet back come back from wherever the hospital and so that stuff just trickled out over time right so we we weren't aware of it right away never had okay. talked to, never talked to each other no okay. we, from the time we got we got blindfolded till the time we got to the barracks where we were going to stay never talk to each other at all you didn't want to they smacking you around every time you open your mouth you got smacked wasn't a good idea you know some guys asked for water you could hear them bam you know hmm, i don't think i'll ask for water i want to, can we go to the bathroom bam no nah, i don't think i'll ask that one you know right let somebody else take the chance on these things you know i wasn't i wasn't going to ask them anything the only, the only reason why I asked that question was was because in one of the in a video I'm going to play here in a little bit, uh, the North Koreans in their propaganda videos that they've got a lot of uh, say said that that person that crew member was resisting, and that's how he got killed. So, <laughs> well, we were all sort anyway. of resist. I guess we were all sort of resisting, but <laughs> right. not, not hand to hand with them or something. Not like they hand-to-hand -hand combat and they killed him we didn't see them till much later after that yeah yeah it's just a point i wanted to make it's 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 you know the pop propaganda that the north koreans use and, and are still using to this day about the incident you know use that you can use that whole thing out of jokes is how do you know they're lying their lips are moving <laughs> right that covers them top to bottom there wasn't much they said that was real yeah, they didn't need to. No, nobody was going to believe it anyway, so it doesn't matter. Yeah, exactly. Well, I'm going to play that quick, just a quick clip here of, of some of this propaganda that they're they're doing. Of course, they when they when they took you all as prisoners of war, 
they put the ship, they had the ship, where, where was it located? Wonton, you said? Wonson Harbor. Wonson. Yeah. And, and then they moved it eventually to uh, Pyongyang. They moved it to Pyongyang under the Clinton administration. Oh, okay. And they were going to move it, and people wanted them to do something, and they said, well, we're in delicate negotiations. How'd that work out for them? Right. So, you know, we had a chance to get it. They blew it. Right. They just kept blowing it, so I don't know, whatever. Yeah, so this video, little quick clip, I'm gonna show. I'm not showing the whole thing, but the the clip that I'm gonna show is is the propaganda video that they're, you know, they've turned the USS Pueblo into a, uh, a propaganda museum, uh, <laughs> in no lack of better words, and uh, this is one of the videos that they actually sell to people as a uh, tour of the oh. Pueblo. Okay, maybe I haven't seen bits of this. Who knows? I think you probably have. <laughs> probably. Okay. The great leader Kim Jong-il said as follows. The brave seamen of our people's army captured Pueblo, the armed spyship of the U.S. imperialists, which was conducting espionage in our territorial waters, and over 80 aggressors on board a ship. It was a severe punishment to the U.S. imperialist aggressors who violated the sovereignty of our country. Pueblo, armed spy ship of the U.S. imperialist. This is Pueblo, armed spy ship of the U.S. imperialist aggression forces captured by our seamen on January the 23rd, 1968. These are the crewmen of Pueblo. There were 83, including six officers. But one of them was killed at the time of capture as they attempted to resist. The report on the capture of Pueblo excited the world. A foreign reporter said, The capture of a U.S. warship by other nation is a surprising event unprecedented in history. What will be the answer of the United States that claims to be a superpower? The then U.S. President Johnson, with an air of surprise, said Pueblo was a civilian marine research vessel which was operating on the open sea. And he maintained that the capture of Pueblo and its crew was a violation of the international law. The captured crew also attempted to hide their identities and deny their crimes. But informations and evidences captured on the ship proved their crimes. So yeah, that's just a part of their little propaganda video that they 
they sell at the dock there where the ship's at. <laughs> so. uh, yeah, I'm wondering about all them them guns laying there. Uh, we we may have had those on board, locked up somewhere. I I don't know, but I don't know that I've ever seen that little in clip there about that. Um, yeah, there were some Thompson submachine guns that were supposedly yeah, in the lock. It's, it's possible. It's possible. Yeah, their propaganda always kind of just. <laughs> throws me for a loop you know it's just just a you know a little side my, my wife's from a communist country if you want to call it a con- laos yeah. and you know i lived there for for a, while, a year and uh not to get into that part but she had never seen any of this stuff she didn't know any of this she didn't know any of this ever happened and uh she'd never heard of this <clears throat> until she got here and i i don't I don't get into it too much with anybody. Um, and slowly it trickled out to her till I finally had to kind of fill her in, the, fill in the blanks. So I said, I got to show you something. Now you can go on YouTube and see full length North Korean movies. Mm-hmm. I showed her two or three of those. One, she could hardly finish one. They were so bad. You can almost laugh all the way through them. They're so stupid. And I said, there you go. That's the mentality. And she just goes, oh, my God. I'm glad I didn't grow up there. (laughs) 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 You know, and and we might say from this and oh, about Laos. Laos is, you know, totally different. It's it's apples and oranges. But, you know, it was like she's not have doesn't have that American experience to put on these things. So it, it was funny to listen to her go. Boy, I'm glad I didn't end up there. <laughs> that my country didn't end up like that. And right. uh, so, yeah, just different point of view. Different point of view on this. Exactly. So, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. The the propaganda, and they were just they were just pouring it, pouring the propaganda out the whole time. You guys were, you know, being held prisoner. Um, yeah. Sure. So you were talking about. You were all as soon as you got off the docks there, you were you were put on a bus and you were headed. Uh, they took you to a compound or, or took you to a. We were in some sort of building, and I don't know that everybody had one, but I had a chair that I was sitting in, just a wooden chair. Uh, I, I can't tell you if everybody was or wasn't in a chair, and for some reason, somebody just comes by and just slams me in the side of the head and I'm on the knocks me right on the ground and I'm kind of in shock in a daze. And then a couple people come by and jerk me off the ground and slam me back in the chair and move on. And you're going like, what the hell did I do now? <laughs> you know, right. what I do for that? what I do for that? So, um, yeah, you know, it's just the beginning of a lot of long, strange, weird stuff. These people would do. Um, this is like dropping down a rabbit hole with these guys. Right. And they can dial it up. I've seen all the new stuff on TV, tra- people traveling in North Korea, you know, all the, the, the nice pa- faces they can paint on it. Right. It's all smoke and mirrors. You know, it's like, uh, it's like the wizard of Oz, pull back the curtain and there's the real Oz. And it's all, it's all, a, it's all a fake. Yep, and that's what everything there's, it's all of that's that way. So, you know, but they were, they were kind of in their infancy, I think with us, with all this stuff. So I, um, 
I don't know. So what, what did, how did they, um, so you were, you were, you're a prisoner for a little over 11 months. And, uh, what was, what was it like? If if you don't mind getting into that a little bit of what, you know, what, what was your days like? <laughs> I tell people, and I I've heard this for other people from something else. So it's not like this is new for me to say, but it right. was, long periods of absolute boredom you're you're sitting in a wooden chair for you know 16 hours a day whatever i don't know and you can't move you can't sleep you can talk that's about it so um you don't want to go to the bathroom because then you might get beat up again (laughs) and the guards are out there and all you got to do is just talk to each other. On the other hand, then it's absolutely scary. You know, it's just, you know, it's one or the other. Right. And so, uh, yeah, most of it was just boredom. You know, right. what to do, nothing to do all day. We had strange days. We would, we other rooms did sort of the same things. We'd say, today's ice cream day. Everybody talk, all we talk is ice cream today. Okay. So you talk about every flavor you can think of, every way you can make it, every way you can put it together. And that's, you can fill a whole day doing that, you know, hopefully. And so um, that's that's how bored you are. I was lucky to be in a room where five of the guys out of eight I think were CTs, Comtex. Mm-hmm. They were the spooks. They thought their careers were over. So they filled us, filled our days a lot of times with telling us stories of all the places they had been around the world doing this same thing, except from embassies. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. Mostly embassies, you know, working out of embassies. They didn't like stay at the embassy. They had civilian housing, you know, Suing clothes, cars, all, all front for doing some sort of business, but they were going somewhere to listen into somebody. Uh-huh. But they had all kinds of wild tales of being in you know, the Cyprus conflict, uh, in Turkey, just crazy places, doing a lot of stuff. And that was kind of fun to listen to those days, you know, but I'm 21. I don't have a whole lot of stories to share. <laughs> <laughs> right. you know the one that's unfolding but not you know you don't want to go down that road so um yeah you know it was crazy so what what kind of meals did they feed you i that was probably why it was triggering the ice cream days and the hamburger days and the- oh yeah yeah it was it was usually a lot like a lot of asian countries they eat a lot of soup you know soup and rice um so they'd get, they would cook a lot of people couldn't eat rice when they got back i said man you know their rice and our rice that's that, that, you can't even compare those two they would cook it till you could roll it up in a ball and bounce it off the wall <laughs> literally you could you could cock wall windows in the winter time with it um you could find a lot of things that that rice would go to but it wouldn't hardly edible but you ate it anyway we made a vow First, probably the first meal we got, we looked at it and went, oh, really? We got to eat this shit? And somebody says, 
we're, we're going to make a pact. We eat every bite of every meal as long as we're here because our only mission now is to survive. Exactly. That's it. So you, you eat it, whether you like it or not. Boy, I learned to get unfinicky real quick. Not a bit. But it was like, di- you know, boiled diatoms, which are like a big white carrot-looking radish thing that they eat a lot. <clears throat> we call it sewer trout, so we got some fish. We get little bits and pieces of stuff, uh, soup with bones in it. Once in a while, somebody would find a little tidbit of, you know, they would, they would give us a, a, a bread sometimes, each a slice of bread, and you get a tiny, 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 like a kid's teaspoon thing a little thing of maybe a little jam even or a little butter and it would have mold in it the butter so you we get a little we always got a little i don't know why they always gave us sugar every day maybe to give you a little energy right we would take the butter to make it edible we would stir the 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 uh sugar into the butter then we mix the jam if we had it into the butter stir that all up and then we quartered it up and put it on the bread to make it halfway edible so you know we just tried our best to do what you can on on eating you know and um god forget bid you get sick um which wasn't real real often people got sick that i know of. remember um, i had one bad case i was sick when i got there uh-huh. i already had like influenza when i went on just as i we were out a while and i was getting really sick and running a fever you know they kind of knew it and and it went on for a while to got really bad and then they come took me away and started giving me medicine they didn't want to you kind of realize they don't want you to die you're not worth anything dead you're a liability at that point so i got a, a shot or two and something and it went away you know but um yeah food was just the pits the the weird thing was they kept saying when we complained a bit they go what are you complaining about we're eating the same shit <laughs> they didn't say that word but we're eating the same thing we're we're giving you the courtesy eating like us well that was sort of half true they were getting meat and other things added to that they were eating that too i'm sure we found a CIA report probably 20 years later that said, compared to the Pueblo, that's probably exactly how everybody was eating at that point. They were kind of in a starvation point, you know, one of their starvation periods at that time. And oh, right. they just didn't have it. So, but by American standards, it was, there wasn't much there. We were losing weight. People, people got long-term things out of it eyesight all kinds of things right i have peripheral neuropathy uh, in both my legs and they attribute that to bad food uh, bad diet Uh, i'm luckier than most so how much did you weigh when you when you were captured and how much did you weigh when you went home do you remember well i'm guessing 170 went to 135 i think yeah, that's quite a bit. Yeah. yeah. You know, I look at the picture they took when we came across the border at the end into the DMZ, and my face doesn't look that bad. 
but when you take your clothes off is where you see it. Oh yeah. Most definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Most people, I don't know why it, it shows up more on your body than in your face. Um, but it does. Yeah, yeah, you can look back at the World War II POWs, you know, they were taken POW by the Japanese and starved to death, you know, and their faces looked great. But as soon as you took the clothes off, it, you know, they were just, yeah, it was it was bad. Wasn't good. Yep. I still have some things I bought in San Diego after I got back, and I go, I, I you know, pull them out and go, really? <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, that's a nice right. clothes. Uh, really? I, I wore this even in San Diego after we got back? Mm, okay. <laughs> Wish I could get at least a little closer to that now. <laughs> exactly. So did they pull you out of this, out of your holding areas very often for propaganda purposes, signing confessions, things like that kind of garbage? You know, they did at first trying to milk it for all they, they could, because I think, I thought, I think they thought like us, it was going to be short lived that the American government would just capitu uh, capitulate and, and do something. And U.S. government said, nah, I don't think so. Not with what you want. So we're not going to do it. And at a point, there was a point way later on that we, that we really felt like we were becoming a liability. We were becoming less and less worth anything. And they were more winning, willing to bend only because they were just getting sick and tired of having us and feeding us and not getting anything more out of it. Right. And so, you know, it, it just, they, they, I don't know. It's, it's you know, it's, it's so, I mean, I, I, you know, like I said, my wife's life, I, I've lived there. I can get inside their head real easy. They're great. You, right. you know what they're thinking. You know, you can pick it up real quick, but they're real open, nice people. I never felt like I could get in one person's head there at all. I couldn't figure out what, the, you know, I don't think anybody else knew from minute to minute what they were thinking. You never knew. I mean, it's like one time uh, we got through and a lot of guys got things stolen right away. Watches, rings. They never got them back. Oh, okay. I had a St. Christopher around my neck on a dog chain. Why they'd never noticed it, I don't know. And I went in the hallway. Two guards see it. And they want it. I said, no. They said, yes. I said, no. We went round and round till more guards start to show up and it starts to get rougher. And I said, oh, this is, this ain't worth a St. Christopher. I just give them to them uh -huh. and go back to the room. Wasn't a few hours. Some officer comes in, stomps in the room. We're all going, whoa, what's happening? And he slams that St. Christopher on the table and turned around and walked out the door. Oh, no kidding. <laughs> I, I, yeah, it, I lost it again later at some point. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, why do you take that away from them and give it back? The only thing I can figure, they hadn't been given permission. Oh, right. Oh, you don't break that rule. Us or them. Right, exactly. They had broke a rule thinking, oh, it'll be okay. They're just they're just our prisoners. Uh, nobody will care. I think somebody got punished on that. I do. Because that guy wasn't happy. You know? But I got it back at that point. So, yeah. you know, what was going through their heads? Why'd they give me that back? They didn't give everybody their watches, rings, and other things back. Just didn't do it. Right, right. So they had taken you guys out and had you do some confession stuff or, or something at one point or 
but uh, some of the other crew members had this wild idea to, uh, you know, because of all the propaganda garbage that they were trying to pull, that uh, they came up with a, a sign, <laughs> the Hawaiian good luck sign. <laughs> you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. Quite frankly, I'm not 100% sure. I see it's attributed to Pete, and it probably was. He was the clever. He was clever. He was always thinking up. He was always a step ahead of him. You know, we go to something, and and we, we, we'd we see a movie. Just, I'm going to digress, but it'll have to do with this. We'd go see a movie, and somebody would say something about the movie, and, and they would be really unhappy at that point. And Pete would stand up, and he just knew how to say weird things that they couldn't quite translate, but they thought he was trying to apologize or make it right. And he was at a point, but he was still trying to make fun of them. And they, a lot of things were over their head. And, you know, when you say our American sayings, the things we say every day, they they have no idea. So why, this is another one of these, why, I don't know. This just is, I, I was assigned to clean Pete's room every day. The officers had their own room and were not allowed to meet. Why they had me go in and wipe a floor that was dirty, that was never going to be clean with a dirty rag and dirty water. I don't know. But we, Pete and I used that as, as a communications. And Pete would tell me, and they, they didn't watch me very close. Pete would say, tell me what he wanted me to pass to the crew as orders. So after that point, and that, that was after that point that this Hawaiian good luck shot, uh, came up quite a bit. I don't know if he's told that to me and I told it to the crew. I don't know. I can't remember that at all. But that would be where I think it came from. If somebody else got a, a better take on it, Okay, that's fine with me, but but yeah, you know. So I'm just I'm just this low lowly guy and the nobody on the crew, and I'm the conduit from the Pete Pete to the crew. Yeah, and for our listeners, Pete was the captain of the ship. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. Booker was the captain, and and so you know that would come back to haunt me. Uh, later on but didn't think much about it at the time seemed all right seemed cool got see pete i like pete he was you know he was nice to us uh we all liked him so yeah yeah and so that that hawaiian good luck sign was actually you guys flipping flipping the north koreans off giving them the bird yeah, I don't know. Was that time? I can't remember. I can't I see you got a picture back there, but that was in the cover. Wasn't it time? Yeah, time you can kind of, yeah, you can see down there where down at the yeah. bottom, one of the guys. Yeah. So at this point, we're all kind of in a lull period and nothing's much going on. Just kind of rolling along. It's getting towards the end. We don't know that. And the Koreans are just biding time to get what they want and all of a sudden they get a copy of time magazine and the article spells out everything that got reporter sees and he interpreted the picture exactly right yeah and he tells it to him 
And they went ballistic because they knew, as well as we knew, everything they had done, at least to the West, was a joke. Yep. And they were not happy campers. Yeah, they, they realized that you guys are a form of resistance. And that's what began what we call Hell Week. And that was really the worst period we had. Now, individuals had bad periods off and on here and there all over. But they were mostly individual. This was a group. This was a group thing. I mean, not that everybody got it as bad as the other people, but it wasn't good for anybody. It got bad. And they cut rations. They shoved us into more people into rooms. You had to sit every day, all day from dawn till dusk with your feet on the floor, your head between your knees. Because you were bad, <laughs> you know, and you're trying to be repentant or something. I don't know, as they always said, uh, it, that wasn't fun. And then the beatings began, you know, after that. And it just it just went downhill that whole I don't know if it's really a week how many days it was, but we call it hell week. Yeah, I didn't have a no calendar and I wasn't counting days at that point. Right. You know, trying to survive minute to minute, hour to hour. It's just that bad. You know, you thought this is it. These guys are at their point that they don't really care anymore. Yeah. They acted like they didn't care anymore. The only reason I I, I realized it at one point that they there was light at the end of this. I had, I was sitting in a room facing a window and I could see the, the West and I'm in a chair and we'd been dancing in the room. I call it dancing. It's when you get beat up <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and they put a gun in the back of my head and this officer says, you ain't going to live to see the sunset. Whoa. Well, shit, I'm out of here. I'm I'm done here, guy. What are you going to do between now and you pull the trigger? I'm done. And all of a sudden, I think they can look, they look in your eyes and they know they just lost you. Right. You either won or they got to pull the trigger. They didn't pull the trigger. I won. Exactly. Everybody else won. They knew they had lost us. Luckily, Right at the end of this, and it, it, Hell Week was still going on, they signed this piece of paper. And immediately, I mean, immediately things changed from hot to cold. Bam. Like a light switch. They run in and grab me, grab all the people been beat up. Boop. Now we're in other rooms. Now we get hot wax packs, eggs to roll on uh, bruises, you know, trying to make you look good before you go home. Right. We didn't always go home at that point yet, but we had a real inkling of that. We lost you there, John. Yeah. And, um, and uh, so, yeah, you know, that was, that was pretty crazy. Yeah, that would have been, uh, you know, what did, uh, I, I guess. You know, you know, I'm, you know, in therapy and stuff like that, you go to, or any of these things they call that when that happens that, you know, the gun thing that they do, um, that's when that happens to you, it's called psychological death. Right. You've won. You can't die. The problem was just to move forward real quick. The 
problem was when we got back, the Navy was not prepared. They didn't do anything. And a lot of us were lucky we didn't die because we thought we were invincible. We were just doing stupid stuff that a lot of times should have got us killed even again, right away. And, and, and the people around you got scared of you because you, you, you were involving them in scary things. And, and they just, how can you die? You're already dead once. You're, you're Superman almost kind of a, a mentality, you know? And I don't know that you think about it at the time quite that way. You're just doing it. Only later do you does it catch up to what, and you learn what's happening. But right. yeah, you know, it's... It's not a good thing to have happened to you. It seems like it at the time. It seems good, but it really doesn't pay down the road. Right. You got to get that. You got to shake that mentality. So, uh, how did you find out you guys were coming home? We're in these rooms that they're trying to get us ready, and they go, "Okay, let's go down to the end of the hallway." And they had a big room, and they had piles of brand new clothes and shoes, everything. And they said, take everything off, throw it on the corner and go over and get new sets. And we're in and then down the stairs into buses. As soon as they got everybody loaded in buses to the train station, everybody loaded on trains. And I mean, I don't mean cattle cars. This is regular trains, right? Seats, the whole thing. Boom. It took a few hours. What it shouldn't have taken a few hours. I don't know what all happened. It seemed like we were there. We were there overnight. I think this all transpired in the night. We moved a little bit from Pyongyang down to the border. In the morning, they put us back on some buses, took us down to the bridge that we walked across. God, they're stupid. They just go okay, and some of them actually says. It didn't happen to me, but to other people. Give me your cigarettes. Because he gave us a comb and cigarettes and a book box matches and little shit to put in your pocket to look like you had something, you know. Right. <laughs> Just a bunch of little five and nine from the dollar store type stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and, and they took some of it from them. Didn't, they didn't bother me. And they said, before you cross, if you cross that bridge and you turn around and look back, this gig's over. The people behind you don't get to cross. Oh geez. Well, I'm in fairly I I seem like I was fairly close, at least in the first half, put it that way, to walk across. I get about halfway and I just turn around and take one good long last look. And then turn around. And I, I think a number of people did that. They just disobeyed it. They knew it was not gonna stop. They weren't gonna stop it. It was in motion. And so it just felt like good to just stop and turn around and look back at him and say, this one, this last look you get of me and the last look I want of you, bye, you know, and then walked on up to uh, cross and got on a bus. Yeah. I'm going to play a quick clip of your guys' homecoming and I'm going to get your, get your uh, thoughts on it. I'll take a Valium on that one.
After 11 months of history, the crew of the USS Pueblo has come home. 82 men. A long-awaited reunion with his wife for 11 months and fought in every way she knew possible to win the Behind the captain, the members of the crew are now piling off the plane one by one, carrying small white couple bags. Each of them being singled out by their family, more than 200 of the members of the crew's family, reaching over the restraining rope down. A second giant C-141 unloading, unloading its share of the crew. here in San Diego and from all of the nations. Yeah, the sound wasn't very good in there, but... Uh, Never it, is uh, on all that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It did, was interesting. Did, I, did I hear that right? They said the second plane? Yeah, they said a second plane. There was a bunch of people on a second plane. Wow. See, that's the first time in all this time I ever heard that. Oh, really? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I you know, when you and I talked before, it, you're you're in, sh we're, you know, we're almost the same day. We're we're we cross the border, twenty third with the time change. We get here. Well, we the twenty fourth. It was Christmas Eve. Yep. We leave there on Christmas Eve. We get here on Christmas Eve because of the time change. I mean. It was just bang, bang, bang. You're just okay. You're at the DMZ. Okay, walk down. Get on a helicopter. Fly, fly across to, you know, over Seoul to to uh, to the hospital. Uh, sleep, shower, sleep. Get up in the morning. Get on a plane. Get off the plane. You know, and it, it all compresses down into like five minutes in your brain. You know, it's like wow, really? All that happened that quick? Yeah. And you don't have time to, uh, what do you call it? Like just, um, process it. Right. Exactly. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's crazy. Yeah. So how did, how did you feel when you touched down there in, in Miramar? What, what was your thoughts getting when you come off the plane? Did you have family there to, to greet you? Yeah. My, my mom and dad were there. I believe my sister was there. Maybe my brother. I don't know. <laughs> I think I know my sister was there. I don't know if my brother got there quite yet, right then or not. And did it feel, did it feel mm, like it was all over? That it, that it was finally behind you? Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't think I was thinking about it that way. Quite. Okay. You know, it's still a shock. You just like things are coming at you. You can't believe we get there, and the first thing we're all thinking though is, okay, it's really good to see family. 
but we all had in the back of our mind what how did the, the american public feel about all this oh right we were scared you know we were we thought man we're public enemy number one and why why did you think think that because uh, of like stuff that came out confessions and stuff yeah, we didn't really realize that the American public had seen very little of any of that. Oh, okay. My parents said they watched. They never seen any of those. They seen little clips. It seemed like the news people in those days, and like today, that tell everything they know, right. uh, you know, were a little bit like, well, let's clip this down so it looks decent, good. You know what I mean? Uh, so they weren't aware of it. I don't know if they cared. I, I have no idea what was going on in this end. But on the TV, I didn't see it. But yeah, we were terrified. These people are, our people are not going to like us. They didn't really want us home. And so what are we going to do? What's going to happen to us? We got on the buses. We pulled out on the freeway. We knew that immediately. They were in love with us. Yeah, your hero's coming home. Coming home. You know, I get emotional over this. Yeah. I don't get emotional over the beatings, having a gun in my head. Okay. Is what it is. The outpouring to us was unbelievable. My mother's trying to talk to me. All I can see. I mean, they got the freeway closed from, from Mir- uh, was that Miramar? Yeah. In, in the, in the San Diego. The freeway's totally closed. They don't do that. Freeways line with literally must have been thousands of people, American flags everywhere, signs to us. Man, they must have made that up overnight. Right. Boom. And we're all going like, oh, really? Oh, my God. What a sigh of relief, you know. It was it, that was that was the best feeling in the world. Yeah. And I've always felt really bad that Vietnam veterans didn't get to have what we had. Right. Yeah. We got, we got that parade. They didn't. Yeah. That's, that's a good point. That's a very good point. No, no, it's, it's, um, city of San Diego was just, couldn't, couldn't have done enough. I, I, I was there four months. I think I ate three or four meals on base. I never paid for a meal. Uh Very seldom pelt for alcohol. People knew who you were. You're on the news all the time. Right, exactly. You knew all our faces. I mean, I'm a kid from farm country in the Central Valley of California. I just turned 21. I'm at the El Cortez, big fancy hotel in San Diego. Step into an elevator going up to my parents' room and people turn around and go, oh, and point at me. We saw you on TV last night. And I go, <laughs> I don't say any said, I, I just kind of smile and, you know, they're being nice. They're just kind of weirded out about the whole thing too. Right. But inside my brain, I'm going like, well, goody for you, you know, <laughs> you know, so you saw me on TV. I, you don't know how to respond to that. You know, you're just a young kid still. You go, 
you have you have no idea how to how to take that uh, you know they start making trying to make you into a celebrity you know we had to try to find places to hide right you know we we finally found a bar we call i don't know what it's called up the hill in san diego where the streets go way up up and up and up stair step away from downtown san diego we had a nice bar up there that nobody asked us anything nobody bothered with who we were you know they had a bands and music all on the weekends and stuff and no they knew who we were they just let it lie right there they didn't say anything we were there the first time it was weird we me and my i say my crew it was the guys i hung with all the time i won't name names but it was just a handful of guys and maybe six, seven, eight, off and on, up and down. And we just got there, and we're looking for a place to, like, let's get the hell. The more away from downtown we can get, the better. Uh, you know, and we, we get in this place, and we're playing pool and drinking, and everybody I don't know whether I said it or something. Man, we got to get something to eat. You know, it's getting later and late in the evening, and let's get something to eat. So I, I walk up to the bar, and I ask the bartender, I said, can we can we get some some food delivered here? Said, oh yeah, man, we got a pizza place here in town. It's the best in the world. Okay, give us three or four big pizzas, sorted, you know, different ones. Okay. A little while, a guy comes in with the pizzas. He sets them on the bar, and he said, "I said, how much is it?" He said, "Oh no, they're free." What do you mean they're free? He says they're free. All my boss was wants you is all you guys to sign the bit the tab, all of you. We're going like what for my a kid a kid like me's autograph's going to get four pizzas, <laughs> right. you know? I mean, boy, I hit the jackpot, right? You know, I didn't get a something even bigger. I didn't get a Grammy or something, but I, you know, hey, I got four pizzas. What I was looking for, and so we signed it, went away, and we go like, what the heck was that all about? Well, I don't know if it's next day, but in a couple of days, we get we get letter from. It was Caruso's. I'm not sure they're there anymore. I couldn't find them. If they, it, they've redone all of downtown San Diego. And um, they sent a thing saying, hey, as long as you're in town, you get all the free food you want anytime, day or night. So we'd be like, get up in the morning. We're going to go to the beach. We'd stop by Caruso's. Everything was imported. Italian meats, everything really nice. Deli. Yeah. They'd make us up a whole bag of sandwiches and just hand them over the counter. Off we go to the beach. Now we got food for the day, you know, uh-huh. and uh, go there for dinner. They knew us so well. Like, I, you know, I craved milk when I got back. We're eating Italian food. I get a gla- I just barely going to get done with the glass I got. And the waitress would, there was another one on the table. You know, she just had it time. She knew. That's how often we ate in there. You know, and it was all over town was like that. All the best restaurants in town open all the food we wanted. They made IDs for us, special IDs. And um, wow, you know, what got, who could get a better deal than that? You know, right. Disney gave us all the free tickets we could use at Disneyland. Most of the guys couldn't use them because they d- didn't have cars to get to Disneyland. Me, I bought a brand new car when I got back. I wasn't married and didn't have kids, you know, so I only had me to take care of. So it was about me, but yeah, you know, it was just one day after another, it was just free things rolled in the door. 
and you don't, you hung out at the beaches a lot too, didn't you? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I met a lady down there who I consequently married, my first wife, and and she was going to San Diego State, and she seemed to pretty well have her classes jammed in the mornings, and I don't know how she got through it while I was there at all that semester, because oh god, I hate to say it, but you know we. We'd stop at the liquor store right right outside campus, San Diego State, and fill ice chests in the trunk of the car, pull in the parking lot, start popping a few, you know, and there'd be a couple of people, guys in the car, and we'd sit there and drink till the girls came, and this is early morning, in the late morning, and we'd close the bars at two and then drink till four and sleep till five, till five or six and get up and start going shower and shave and do it again yeah so what yeah. Is, what is what is the months and the years after been like for you i mean um you know well, i know you went through hell every one of you went through hell and roughly i guess it was i get back and i'm trying to stay busy and and, and my way of kind of avoiding everything was work uh-huh. i worked for the public utility here pacific gas and electric and the area i live in the pacific northwest we had a lot of outages you know storm damage stuff like that i signed up for every minute of overtime i could get night and day if i was at work i was okay i'm busy you know i own property i had a lot i always had lots of work here to do i had a place to build so it was just work build work build back and forth that had two kids in the middle of that and, and, um, you know, and then I began to try to go overseas. I, I, I always had a, a, a travel little thing my dad and I had, and I just started just, I don't know how my first wife put up with it sometimes. I mean, I, I, one time I just kind of packed up. I said, I, I got four weeks. I, I, I'm me and the sky are going to Nepal. Oh, wow. And at that time, you couldn't call over there other than $100 a minute. You know, I mean, it was like, it was no way your letters would get home after you did. They had right. no clue where I was going and what what happened to me till I got off the plane in the U.S. Period. That's got to be hard. I, right. I really didn't think about it too well. And at that time, I wasn't thinking so good of what they were going through. My kids and I get along really well. I guess it all turned out okay in the end. I be, when I got enough money later on, I began to try to take them on trips overseas. I had a fascination with Asia. Had nothing to do with the Pueblo one way or the other. It came from when I was a kid. Came from when I was a kid watching old Lowell Thomas and stuff on TV. And that, my dad was a big I, National Geographic. We'd read it and look at the maps every month and pretend we were going to exotic places and i tried to fulfill those so it was just like i never had a minute to sit down it wasn't until my second wife came here and she was here a long time she goes why do you build all this stuff why are you doing all this i said what do you mean she goes i've never seen you sit on the deck and read a book and enjoy it all you do is do more Right. Well, I'll never get done in my lifetime. I got plans. And she goes, aren't you supposed to at least stop and enjoy a little of it? You know, but, you know, before that, yeah, you know, I got to a point where things were falling apart. I couldn't control. I couldn't control anything. 
Okay. Uh, luckily, along came a Marine. Who saved my life. Uh-huh. I'm not going to go into gory detail. Right. But he's now deceased. I firmly believe I'd be in prison now. One for him. Yeah, I think we all have that one person. Yeah, yeah. And thank God we do. Because bit by bit, he put my life back together. And I did. Sorry. Oh, no, you're good. And so you... uh. Well, I'm here and he ain't. That, that bothers me. Right. But you, you, you went to and started doing some stuff with uh, some groups with the VA, correct? Yeah, I went. Luckily, the, the system of what they call vet centers opened up across the United States. So we had a place to go, safe place. And we had groups to be in group. You had to be a combat vet. Everybody was from Vietnam, combat vet, but me. It's surprising we had all the same emotions, all the same bad problems. Everything was just exactly the same. So trauma's trauma. Yep. So you know. But, but you've done you've done a lot to help veterans though, after Yeah, there's a there's a group of us that after we got to a point we could. You know, people would come to me and say, oh, how are you doing? What, how'd you do this? Da, da, da. And I said, well, hell I'll, I'll, hell, I'll help you. So I started just on my own claims, getting people there 100% if I could. Um, so I was working as a veterans advocate, but I had nothing behind me but just doing it. Right. And I was fighting with San Francisco, our, our hospital at Fort Miley, and fighting with the system and uh, they knew they were losing. It just, they didn't like it, but incredibly there's a system in by law that every hospital has to have veterans advocates. And so <clears throat> we formed up one up and down the North coast from San Francisco to me, about about seven people that float in and out. So that hasn't been running since the COVID and, but um, it's hard to get in there these in, in these clinics and get an office to sit down and use once in a while. And I went to San Francisco, got a, a little bit of training, and I get a badge from the VA, lets me walk in the doors without being, you know, harassed or something. And <laughs> right, you know, it's kind of little play acting on both our parts, but it works. <laughs> Makes me have some legitimacy and. And my wife now, she goes, well, you do also, you need a business card so people know how to get a hold of you. You're always writing on scraps of paper. That's I true. Said, yeah. And I said, oh, yeah. You know, because in Asia, business cards are a big deal. If, if you got a business card, you're somebody. Uh, gotcha. Whether you are or you ain't, they think you are immediately. Right. And 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 so, uh, so she designed one on some site and ordered me up a couple of hundred of them and they were pretty cool. She did a good job. And, um, 
So I, you know, I hand those out here and there. I don't always get a response. Um, don't always expect one, but if you get one once in a while, it's okay. So yeah, I, you know, you got to give back. I, I have to kind of step in and out because I can't, I, it's not possible for me to get too entangled in things. Right. Because this Marine that's gone, part of the problem he had, he was at the battle of way. Oh, okay. Yeah. He went through, scrapped it. Yeah. You don't want to hear. Anyway, he not only had his own PTSD problems, he was absorbing all his patients' PTSD problems. Yeah. Now he had it double. He had it once from the working for the working for the VA PTSD, and then he had it from being in the uh, Marine Corps. Double whammy. So they let him go, put him on pension, let him go. So, and we stayed in touch. He moved around. He went to Hawaii and to Mexico. I followed him here and there all the time. We hung together. Um, so he disappeared for a long time before he died. And then ended up right back here where I live. And, uh, but by then he was, his mental, his health was so bad. It was just hard to be with him. But, um, Yeah, but I will tell you one thing. That all sounds like a big downer. How you see on this screen, I wouldn't trade one minute of my life for anything. Exactly. No. I have two wonderful sons. I have my land and my home I always dreamed of. I've been all over the world. I got the wife I dreamed of. Took me the second time to do it. <laughs> She's an angel. She right. kicks my butt. She keeps me in line and I most of the time need it. <laughs> so, you know, she don't lift, let me drift too far. Right. She, she don't have me by the nose. She don't like have total control, but she knows when to step in and when to step out. Right. And, uh, it works. It clicks. And I, I found a new family in Laos. I love the people. Love my family. Yeah. I was going to bring that it's up. because. Because you you spend you were telling me when we were talking on the phone here the other day that how you spend uh, you travel over there every other year or every year or something when you get yeah, a chance. Yeah, we're there. We're there people. at least once a year for. We used to go three months. <laughs> She's a lot mm -hmm. younger than I am, so her friends were like not married when we were, she was married, and we'd go back, and they were all footloose and fancy free, and you'd go out to dinners and you know have parties and. As time went by, they all get married. They all have kids. Now yeah. they got parents that are old. They got to take care of, and you end up setting into sheer boredom, sitting there way, you know. So we had to start doing a new program. So we don't stay as long as we used to. We incorporate other trips in the trip. Yep. Um, she finally convinced me after fifteen years, no way, to go to Korea. And you know Mike Henshaw. Yep. He's not been on here. He got me in the, into a deal with some people. He knew the base commander. He fixed me up with them. The military, I went to stay at, we, my wife and I stopped in Seoul for, we stayed there for a week and at the Dragon Hotel on base. And uh, that's another thing we, we do get is 100% permanent in total. You get, 
all the bennies of being a retired veteran. Yep. So we get to use PXs, which is none here, but the hotel thing's pretty cool. So, man, we got to, we got to Seoul and we got the deluxe treatment at the to go to the DMZ. I got to step back into North Korea. She got to go step into North Korea, only a few feet, but we got to step back into North Korea. <laughs> yeah, but you don't get to come to my side of the fence, dudes. You know, you're stuck there. I'm over here. Uh, and uh, that was, it was really, I'm really glad I went. It was, it was good for me. Uh, I enjoyed Korea. We went out with a, 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 a on-base guy and his girlfriend who was Korean. Went out and did a little eating and drinking through the, through the town at night a couple of times. And we did some sightseeing. I loved it there. I want to go back. Um, I liked it there. And uh, some of the crew said, eh, no, man, I don't know why you went back, you know, but they, 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 first time I brought, brought, brought my, this wife to, to a, a reunion, they go, they really laid into me. Yeah, here you are living in a combi country. Now you brought one a wife back. You know, they were just fucking <laughs> fun. We all laughed, and they love her. She's great. And they just love her, and we all get along great. But they just had to give me a ribbing, like, "Why would you be so stupid?" You know, and I go, "Ah, you just, you just don't get it." But <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, on one of your trips to Laos, you actually had the opportunity to go help search for Vietnam uh, MIA. Again, Mr. Henshaw set me up with the JPAC crew that was there. I had to get a letter from my congressman. I don't know why that had to happen, but it did. And I brought it over on one of my trips and I called them and they said, yeah, we're doing missions. And uh, so I sent my, gave them all the info they needed. And um, I'd been in another country multiple, multiple, I mean, 50, 60, 100 times by that point. And because uh, we cross in and out, excuse me. And I, I, uh, we were getting close to going home. So I gave him another call. I said, like, uh, is this going to happen or not? You know, while we're here. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, we're going up country tomorrow. You got a bag pack? Got a go bag got ready to go. I said, Hey, I'm packed to go right now. They said, We'll be there at six o'clock in the morning. I said, okay. Now, a little side thing to this. My wife's uncle lived across the street from us there in Laos. And, and he used to kid, say in the neighborhood, I don't know, that white guy must work for the CIA. Why else would he be here? You know? <laughs> right. And he was putting that around the neighborhood and, and, you know, everybody just took it as a big joke, right? Six o'clock in the morning two big black suburbans show up in front of our house <laughs> guys jump out in black with you know sunglasses on the whole trip just like on tv in the movies i jump in and off we go and i'm thinking wonder what the neighborhood thinks of this you know but yeah i got to go up country uh spent three days up there uh we stayed actually stayed in a hotel in a kind of the central area i went to three different digs yeah, it was it was just uh, uh, a wonderful wonderful thing for me uh, to be in on this. So just even that tiny bit. Yeah, we, first sight we get there, we get we fly in, and these are uh, this is a New Zealand company that flies. They got beautiful helicopters, 
We get there and one's nose into a rice paddy. (laughs) They caught the skids and broke that helicopter pretty good. So we get out, the officers in the helicopter with me says, oh my God, I haven't even heard of this yet. So he runs up the hill, you know, and I'm behind him. He says, everybody okay? Yeah, yeah, everybody's okay. Okay, yeah, no problem. We're, you know, they're just working. And I said, well, you guys crashed the helicopter. And they said, no. I said, what do you mean, no? It's right there in the rice bag. See it from here. And he goes, no. He says, a crash is when you get hurt. That was just a hard, that's a, called a hard landing. Right. And I'm going, well, okay. <laughs> However you want to call it, guy. Still looks to me like you crashed a helicopter. And so it was good laughing. You know, they were looking in a rice paddy there for a plane that gone down. And we went to another one. It was a, pl- a plane slammed into a mountain. They were digging a long trench. The next day we went and we flew. It's hard to tell you about Laos unless you get a map, but we flew straight north. And where you end up is just south of Dim Vinh Phu, where the French were fighting. The plane we were looking for, you I think you know what it was more than I do. We call I call always called them flying boxcars. Yeah, it was an Air America. Twin tail and the tail flips open. What is it? Yeah, one of the Air America flights. Yeah, it was an Air America plane. They were flying supplies to the French and got shot up. Turned south into Laos. Because usually they would go to Thailand. And uh, so they were trying to get back, just get back into Laos and, and, and go in. And they tried to skid in on a river bar. Well, when I got there, it was pretty obviously they missed the the river bar because up above the river bar, up high on a flat area, and then there's a mountain, there was broken glass out of the rear window, which was cobalt blue. And I don't know why they had a cobalt blue wraparound window in the back, but it was broken little pieces. It was all over the ground still. You could see it, just walk out and pick them up. And they were doing the whole thing. And they said they'd found two of the people and they were looking for one more. And um, I told you, but they, they, uh, they came across, they, they had a guy, an old, old Lao guy came and told them they weren't looking in the right place for the third guy that they had wrapped him in a tarp and buried him up against the hill. And um, maybe because they didn't want it, the body to wash away at, at high river times. Uh-huh. That's, that was my idea. I don't know well, why they put sense. it out that far away, you know, and um, they planted an orchard around there, but they knew right where the body was and they pointed it out. And while I was there, they were digging and a guy came across the road, real excited. And he says, we found him. I go, how do you know you got him? And he holds out his hand and he had a 1947 penny in mint condition and a 10 silver piasta French coin in his pan. He says, that's called pocket change. We had him. They had not found bones at the, that day. I did get a note later within a few days that they had actually begun to find the, the bones that they that they had found the body. Right. What there was to find, they found it. Who they had found was kind of cool. This guy, I can't remember his real name, 
They called him Earthquake Muldoon from the cartoon Terry and the Pirates. Because he's a great big giant guy with a big beard. And there was, there was, I remember it a little bit as a kid, but it was really before my time a bit. Uh-huh. But I, I still remember seeing the cartoons once in a while when I was a kid. Most people today wouldn't know what it was. It, it was like a, it was a kind of mercenary cartoon uh, comic books. Uh, Terry and the Pirates, but Earthquake Muldoon was one of their pilots. So this guy was big. I he'd flown. I must have been. It was World War Two because the Korean War wasn't. He he was. That, yeah, that wouldn't have worked out. Anyway, they found him, and that, they were kind of excited about that because he was actually some somebody everybody in the U.S. had kind of heard of uh-huh. a lot, and so you know it was kind of celebrity and. You know, they, they was kind of excited about finding that one. So, you know, even though they really weren't anymore, again, any more military, they were Air America. They count, of course. Oh, most and definitely. So, yeah, you know, they were just blocked. And so sheep uh, dipped or whatever you want to call it at the time. So, yeah, it was kind of cool. You know, I had a good time. Uh we went out and had a nice dinner a couple of times, uh, you know, drank a few beers, had sat around, talked. And all these guys are like younger than my kids. Right. And I can, you know, and, and you can sit down and just feel like at home with these guys talking. It really is. It's interesting. Against that across generations, how if you're in the military, you can talk, you can, you can identify, you can be friends. Exactly. Kind of nice. Kind of nice. Yeah, I like it. But frankly, I don't have a lot of friends outside that zone too much. You know, I just, they always say it's about trust. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. They, you know, I just find sometimes they, they don't understand where I'm coming from. So I don't want to fight with people. I just pick pick my uh, pick my friends a little more than other people might maybe. I don't know. Yeah. I don't always understand all the stupid crap I do, quite frankly. <laughs> you know, sometimes I read things and they go, well, that's this. And I go, oh, really? Hmm, I don't know. You know, some armchair guy in a textbook trying to well, tell you. I... Well, you and the Pueblo crew are still pretty tight. You guys have reunions every year. Isn't that correct? Yeah, we're down to two years because we're starting to, the herd's starting to thin. Um, I'm among the youngest. I'm 74. Oh, and I'm, wow. I'm one of the youngest guys on the crew. And uh, even a lot of us are gone. The youngest part guys are gone. So, yeah, it's we, we just had one in Branson. Oh, nice. Yeah, it's, it wasn't a lot to do there as much as I thought. It was, you know, I'm, I, I don't want to go there and go see shows. I want to go visit the crew. Right. But we did do a lot of eating. <laughs> a lot of biscuits and gravy and fried chicken and... Chicken fried steak. We ate a lot of that while we were there because they know how to do it there. Now you're making me hungry. <laughs> yeah, they, they, you know, they do it like mama does it, you know. Mama ain't around no more. So, yeah, it was pretty good. We, I, I shouldn't not plug somebody. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> Is that okay? Oh, yeah, most definitely. Okay, so we all decided that because she's on TV, Paula Dean has a restaurant there. Uh-huh. Okay. She knows supposed to know Southern cooking, right? We're all going to go there and eat. So I think there was eight of us. 
we go on this fancied up place and sit down and it was weird to order, but we got it figured out how they do the system there. There wasn't nothing on that table worth eating. And we had a cross section of everything. Oh, no kidding. Oh, it was bad. So, I mean, we just the diner up the street was way better. And there was a guy there from here where I live who has a restaurant in Branson. We went the next night. His food was excellent. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) A guy named Barry and um, local boy. But Paula Deans was bad. And we just thought, and and the poor waiter, young kid comes up and says, well, how was the cooking? How was the food? And I looked up and said, well, it ain't like my mama's. And he looked at him and he goes, well, it ain't like my mama's either. You know, right. so they, you know, they, they didn't, he didn't do it wasn't any good either. He just worked there. So that yeah, was too bad. You know, everybody was kind of crushed. You know, we got kind of ripped on that meal. It was something we were kind of looking forward to eating at Paula Deans. And so I won't watch that channel no more. I'll go back to my mama's cookbook <laughs> for recipes. Exactly. But yeah. Yeah, so yeah, the reunions are great, you know, keeps us uh, tight, informed. We, you know, we're all on an email list. Um, I, you know, guys that were really my really close friends on the ship, that herd's getting pretty thin too, but I got two or three that we stay in pretty close contact. We call, you know, just you know, we talk, we don't talk about the Pueblo at all. No, uh-uh. yeah, you know, we imagine. may talk more about sharing health issues. We're all getting, Oh, what are you doing for this? Do you have that? I know you got the same thing I do. What's your doctor telling you, you know, but right. you know, we talk about family, what we've been doing, what we're going to do. Just like, like family talks, yeah. not like colleagues talk. It's more family talk. Yeah. So yeah, so where's, good. where's the next one? San Diego. Oh, is it going to be San Diego? I won't Diego? tell you when. <laughs> I won't tell you when, but San Diego. <laughs> gotcha. I was hoping you guys would come back to Pueblo. I don't know. You know, Pueblo's a little bit hard to get into now. It's, it used to, sometimes it was easier than others. I, I can't drive that far anymore. Don't want to. Flying to Denver, I hate Denver Airport more than any place I ever. I hate a lot. I don't like a lot of airports. But yeah, Denver, either. Denver, and Frankfurt are the two of the ones I hate the most. Frankfurt, Germany, I hate both of them are just horrible. Uh, so we went through there this last time. It was seemed like they got it a little better, but yeah, Pueblo's either a drive after that, or I don't think there's any short flights anymore. Are there? you know that there might be Pueblo yeah they seem to come and go you know like regional airlines do they seem to come and go but we I like Pueblo to come to uh it's very friendly you know they do everything they can for us Uh, I like it but San Diego is just a nice easy hop into from anywhere in the U.S. and taxi ride to the hotel and then you're done you know, yeah, nice direct so, little flight. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, Hey, you know, it's just getting harder. People are getting harder to, to move and we keep me. I, you know, I'm used to going halfway around the world once or twice a year, you know, you got to just buckle down and 
roll with a punch and go with that trip, you know? <laughs> oh, I bet, yeah. There ain't no complaining because it ain't going to do no good. It's, it is what it is. So, and, you know, it's, it's fun on the other end, so it's worth it. But I love yeah. it. So. Well, we're getting getting in here for an hour and forty five minutes. Is there is there anything that you'd like to talk about that we haven't discussed, or anything you want to bring up? No, I I, I kind of appreciate this. Get this out a little bit. I, you know, I, I I've never been very reluctant to do anything like this for up till this year, um, and. I'm going to do another one here, I think, for uh, the local at the u- local university. Oh, good. You know, and, and I kind of think maybe thinking about my kids. Yeah, they don't. Exactly. Talk, we don't talk about this. You know, right. they 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 they. Re- I don't know why they seem reluctant. It's like they've heard bits and pieces, and I don't know. I think they. I don't. Maybe they're afraid to say stuff. I have never said anything that they couldn't. Why they don't ask, don't know. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, I, I think that's how kids are. And then I'll, I'll die and they'll go, whoa, we should ask dad this, you know, this, this, and this. That's exactly what will happen. These kinds of things will be, be left behind. They can look them up, watch, and see me. So. Yeah, well, it's yeah. stories. That, the stories that need to be told. You know, all our veterans need to, no matter what, if you combat vet, POW, whatever, just to, just your average veteran needs to tell their story. Just our our, our younger generation needs to hear these. Um, you know, I I I I think I revert. I'm way out of generational thing. I I I don't. I'm just learning to text my kids. It's, they, they won't answer a phone, but they will text, and they live close to me. They live right here in this area, uh, but they will text and stay in touch. But catching them to call is a little harder. But I've had, well, and, and you know, I've, had, I've got 23 years of world travel. And I've got been in some crazy butt places at some crazy. We went to Cambodia when we shouldn't even have been in there. Pol Pot was still there. You know, it was just op- the door. They said the door was open. Go, You can go. And we did. And that almost turned into a big mistake. And uh, won't oh, go man. into it, but you know, it's just I start telling these things, and people say, "Well, you write a write a book. You got to write a book." I go, "You know what? I've tried. I write down five pages, and they sound like crap to me. You know, I just can't do it. But I, I, I have a feeling I can tell stories. Right. I'm a storyteller. I'm not a writer. And th- this format, the old." around the fire the tribe passing on stories that's how i communicate the best yeah and me too <laughs> yeah i mean i think lots of people in the same boat and we think they keep telling us we ought to be in this world of writing it all down and go <laughs> i don't think so i think that's why a lot of organizations are trying to do oral you know you're not going to get the world war ii guys if they were going to write a book they'd have done it by now exactly you know korean war same thing vietnam you don't see any more books coming out all the guys that thought they had something to say and could did it yeah you know nobody you know and a few guys handful of guys wrote little books about the pueblo booker wrote one pretty good uh first one out um i can't and even my travels i can't i have a buddy who sent me a couple of books that are people have led similar type 
lives to, that I did have and 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 wrote little you know cool little books not big but just and I go my buddy's Dave and I said Dave I can't do it I've tried oh you have to no I can't travels with John I got the title well that's it and I got a better title uh Duck's Blood and Sticky Rice is the title to my book, and that's all I have. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and I don't even want to explain that one. That's a damn good title. Yeah, well, I'm hoping it would catch people's eye and they would read it, but it would. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure. Travels in travels, but you know, in Laos. But yeah, it's um, yeah, I've got I got. You know, my wife. I, I don't want to take up too much more time. I I think I told you we we. We built a school in Laos, uh-huh. and I have all that detailed on video. Hundred, not hundreds, but I don't know, maybe a couple hundred hours. I don't know. I got stacks mm-hmm. of videotape. We we've got to cut down to a nice one hour video, but um, yeah, that would be kind of cool to show on some show somewhere. People would see it. the problem is no soundtrack. Oh, gotcha. Our camera, I mean, I guess those, my camera had sound, but, you know, we were never thinking about making it into something. I wasn't trying to do a travel log. Right. So I, I, we'd have to overdub it, and uh, I, I, I guess that could be done, but I don't know. But it would be, you know, I, I've shown it to a lot of people. They like it. I've got a couple other videos people don't want to watch. <laughs> well, think, you just put it all together and put think, it on think YouTube. Of, think of the ending of Apocalypse Now. right there's a sequence in there that i have on videotape and they people don't want to they go okay first minute okay that's enough turn it off (laughs) you're getting pretty primitive at that point but it's fun i have a weird sense of fun (laughs) luckily the wife i have she loves it too she's ready to go just say go in her bags pack so yeah yeah exactly well, John, I really appreciate you coming on and, and telling us your story um, and telling us the story about the Pueblo. And, um, you know, I can never, I can never understand what you actually went through, but I, you know, I do know that, uh, <laughs> you know, you've, 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 you led a hell of a life afterward and it sounds like you've had a hell of a lot of fun and, and, For uh, sure. For yeah. Sure. You know, I'm, I have no complaints, man. The day I die, I mean, I might want more years that I, I'm going to get, but with whatever I get, hey, I'm a happy camper. Yeah, I exactly. I, I, I've come to terms with everything else. And living in Laos was, was great. I, I told you, you know, being there and getting involved in the Buddhist Buddhism has helped me a lot. Uh huh. You know? Teach you how to slow down, think, <laughs> let exactly. go, let go of things that you need to let go of, uh, you know. Yeah. I got yeah. a buddy that's doing it, does AA all the time. And I go, well, it ain't that all that different, <laughs> you know, sometimes. So, you know, pretty good. Pretty good. Yep. Pretty exactly. Well, is there anything else that you want to bring up or? No, God, I, I'm, I'm, my, my wife says, I, when you get me started telling stories, you can never shut me up. So you, you just, <laughs> that's good. Let, you just have to draw a line in the sand, draw a line in the sand and end it, I guess. Yeah. Then we cool. should have you back on, tell some, just some stories. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, I'm always up for another time with you. So. Okay. Well, I appreciate it, sir. And and, I appreciate Michael Henshaw for putting me in touch with you too. Yeah. He's, he's, he's been, uh, you know, I've never hook up with him very much other than phone and, we, you know, when we were in Laos, it was different, you know, because we were both there. And boy, you'd have to ask him how we how we met up, because the only thing I can think is there was a, there was a small those guys the small detachment there at the embassy, and they were young guys. And man, I, I'm like the only white guy in town over there at that time, and and like they had a little place that they'd stop and eat and drink and after work. And I just started going in there and hanging out a little bit with them and talk and stuff. And somehow I met Mike and we, I mean, God, he's my kids is about his age. Right. And, yeah. And we just, we kind you know, you just hit it off with somebody and you don't know why. And just went, and we stayed, stayed in touch all these years. And, um, I'm hoping we hook up again somewhere and, uh, Hopefully, but, uh, oh, we did. I mean, he was working down at Sacramento at the, the new cemetery. And uh, I went down there and did, I think, a Veterans Day speech at the cemetery. God, I hate that when you're in front of people, like, live. Right, right there. And it's the first time I got, like, a, I said, oh, I said, there'll just be a few people there come and talk. I said, okay. I get there, and I look out there, and it's like three, 400 people or whatever. And I'm going, like, oh, my God, what did I step into? and i had a speech written and i didn't even look at it i just kind of winged through it and everything and it seemed to have gone over okay and i you know i would i probably wouldn't have done it but man i i mike's done me some favors and stuff and took care of me and i I just owed him one you know gotta gotta repay gotta repay that debt no matter what it costs so (laughs) turned out okay (laughs) turned out okay all righty yeah, so he's a good guy. I like what you guys do, and I, I want to stay in touch with all of you. Oh, please do. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I'm. Yeah, I got, I got a, I got a later story about Lao. Oh, do you? Oh, good. Okay. <laughs> I got one that needs to needs to be resolved. Maybe I don't know. You never know in these things. Right. Right. Where they're gonna go? You think they're going one way, especially in those countries, man. You think you're going straight and you're going backwards and don't know it, you know? <laughs> right, exactly. So, yeah, take everything with a grain of salt. So, yeah, so, yeah, I got to stay in better touch with Mike about it. I got to find all my paperwork on that. Well, there you go. And stuff, but, uh, all we'll right. Okay. Uh, I appreciate, again, appreciate your time. Just, just hang on here for a second and I'll end the broadcast and, and, okay. and I really appreciate you coming on and, and talking to no us. Problem. And, you got my number. Oh, yeah, my definitely. Answer. Will do, sir. Okay.